Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We're going to talk about energy prices. This has sort of been a double-edged sword for uh, the energy, the oil industry. Uh, not only as everything comes to, uh, everything is shuttered in the world and consumption is down, but also the ongoing rift between Saudi Arabia and Mexico. Uh, uh, the Saudi Arabians, uh, Saudi Arabia's oil minister has agreed to even larger uh, production cuts than uh, OPEC as a whole did. Uh, oil prices fluctuated on uh, Monday today as the positive impact of major producers agreeing to record global output cuts was offset by concerns they will not be enough to reduce a, a glut as the uh, coronavirus pandemic uh, continues to hammer demand. To talk more about all of this, uh, joining us is Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and with uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy. He is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, good to be here, Scott. Thank you. Uh, this is a double-edged sword. There's a couple of things that are attacking the oil industry at this point. One of them, obviously, the shuttering of companies and this consumption, but also the rift going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Can you break these down for us? Well, of course, uh, the overproduction uh, position taken by Saudi Arabia and Russia uh, back about a month ago really uh, added to a very desperate situation in which uh, global demand for oil had begun to not just drop, but plummet uh, and, and really melt down to levels uh, ne- never seen, frankly, uh, where you've had as much as a 30 to 35 percent drop in consumption. Adding, uh, you know, another 10 percent in production would have been absolutely, uh, you know, uh, critical and, 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 and destructive to, uh, to the long term future of the oil sector. So the decision on the weekend uh, over the past uh, five days to have OPEC in Russia cut back 9.7 million barrels, I think sort of halted the decline in oil, followed by Canada, the United States, and uh, Brazil agreeing collectively to drop 3.7 million barrels a day. And then, of course, G20, some of the other straggler nations, uh, part of the G20, committing to drop 1.3 million barrels of production a day. Look, the world prior to this was using 100 million barrels of oil a day. It's now likely not using much more than 65. So do the math. Uh, you know, you got a 30, 35 million barrel drop, uh, million barrel a day drop, uh, but you have production only meeting maybe half of that uh, uh, demand uh, decline. So uh, I don't see how anyone can make the argument uh, that uh, somehow this is going to, uh, you know, cause oil, uh, much less gas prices to rise. Uh, it seemed to be something I heard on a few stations yesterday, last evening, uh, rather surprised. Uh, the comment was made that way. But again, we're dealing with people who don't really have a lot of understanding of the larger picture. And unfortunately, uh, it's not a good story, obviously, for Canada or for any uh, producing nation. And it really is, uh, I think, as you've quite rightly pointed out, uh, uh, an indication of just how serious things are going to be as we emerge from whenever uh, there is declaration that this thing will finally end. It looks like we're still in this for another month at least. Uh, so Russia and Saudi Arabia started this pretty much before uh, the COVID-19 was really picking up steam and, and, and shuttering uh, consumption and such. Where are they now? Where are they now in all of this? Uh, what is their position now in all of this, considering what has happened? Well, I think they realized the U.S. producers, who was really their main target, they, who had gone from you know five million barrels of oil meat a day to twelve point four million barrels a day, uh, was the always the intended target. Uh, American shale producers and the strength of the U.S. Uh, oil industry going from, you know, number 20 in the world all the way to number one 
was the main reason why they needed to flood the market and uh, you know get involved in this zero sum game of driving prices down to ten dollars a barrel if they had to, and see who would uh, survive. The problem is that it's still, despite the agreement that we saw on the weekend to stop the excess production. The other issue that no one's really discussed that had me somewhat concerned this morning as I looked at the tea leaves uh, was the fact that Saudi Aramco, uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, most OPEC nations don't have a free market. They basically dictate and determine the prices. They actually caused uh, an even greater discount for their oil to Asian markets, the ones that uh, are perhaps now, uh, so we're led to believe, uh, emerging from the COVID crisis. So that signals to me that if you're going to drop prices, you're automatically going to you know, use up what little inventory or inventory you've built up. So I'm not so sure that this, uh, this deal is etched in stone. And I guess my suspicion early this morning is now confirmed in the fact that oil is going nowhere right now. It uh, traded a little higher this morning, uh, evened off in the afternoon. Now it's actually trading slightly down. We're talking, you know, within pennies of a barrel. So nothing really to write home about. I think this uh, uh, does confirm that, uh, you know, as far as oil, gasoline and petroleum futures are concerned, the industry is done until uh, we figure out how to either get a vaccine for this uh, virus or we, um, we find a way to uh, accommodate and to get uh, the economies of the world rolling again. Until that happens, oil, I think, is really the biggest uh, trendsetter of all the commodities and the health of our global economy. And yeah, as long as it remains in a funk, we're in big trouble uh, globally. Has this not hurt Russia and Saudi Arabia more than North America? Uh, perhaps, because uh, it's certainly the case of Saudi Arabia. 89, 90% of their, you know, of their economic activity is based on the price of oil. But they have obviously ways of hiding that. Again, when you're state-owned, you don't have to have the same level of accountability. Think of a company like Aramco, considered the world's largest company. Um, you know, not even being able to sell 5% of its shares to give some kind of uh, an expose on, on the true picture of its, uh, of its uh, uh, oil capacity, its oil production, as well as its oil reserves. Uh, same with Russia. You know, uh, there's no accountability. There's no necessary demand uh, of that country that they behave in a way that Canada, the United States, and many other nations are required to behave when it comes to markets open using you know, competition law or antitrust law to ensure that there's compliance and, and uh, transparent behavior. So, you know, we really don't know the situation in Saudi Arabia, but I have to say that uh, given the kingdom is in trouble, survived by a hair, the uh, meltdown uh, that took place seven years ago when we had the, uh, the spring uprising in, um, in, in many parts of the Middle East that toppled many governments. Uh, Saudi Arabia is one of the few that uh, prevented, uh, you know, managed to dodge the bullet. I suspect that when you have this many people, young people, restless, without money, the government doesn't have does not having uh, you know revenues to be able to compensate to maintain its standard of living and to keep the peace and the quiet and tranquility of that country, they could be looking at uh, further troubles down the road and destabilization for them. As for Russia, well, I mean, a country increasingly run by oligarchs that uh, don't really have any re- you know real form of accountability. Half the year, Russia doesn't care about what the price of oil is because most of the oil it produces is domestically consumed, saving except that which it sends to China, both oil and gasoline, and natural gas, I should say. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. What about their health systems, both in Russia and Saudi Arabia? Are they ready for what could be the impact of this disease? Will it affect them the way it has other parts of the world? 
Oh, there's no doubt. Uh, I mean, China has now shut the border to Russians coming into China. That's kind of ironic uh, since the disease started there. And uh, uh, so for Russia, I think a one-day increase of uh, 2,500 people in one day in Moscow was uh, pretty significant. I think I saw that coming across the wire uh, on uh, on Good Friday or on Saturday. Uh, but that's significant in terms of how they're going to be able to respond Will demand uh, falter there? Uh, yes, it falters everywhere. Remember, at this time of year, we've transitioned now from the winter production to now summer production. So the Urals, and I love that oil is making its way to Europe, uh, a market that is already saturated and can't accept any more oil because no one's driving. Same as here. Uh, you know, and you don't have to go very far to some macroeconomic, uh, you know, indicator to say, well, how how are these countries operating? Think of, you know, our own personal selves. Uh, how many of us still have a tank full of gasoline that's been sitting there for over a month? Most of us have. And so it doesn't take a, a large extension to figure out that globally, since this is a global pandemic affecting economic activity everywhere, there isn't much place for oil other than if you can't disc- deeply discount it so that people will consume it or buy it up, uh, you're likely to wind up with massive inventories or storage that uh, is, you know, is really hitting you're really up to the brim, and in many cases, uh, there's a problem, certainly here in Canada, that you can't produce. If you're not putting it in the pipeline, there's no one at the other end to deliver or to take your product. You're likely to have to show de- uh, slow down or shut down your uh, your production. In Canada's case, it may very well be as much as half of our oil production may be shut in. That uh, in of itself is scary, uh, not just for Alberta, but when you consider the economic outflow of uh, you know, $85, $90 million in economic activity a day, uh, affected, you know, government of Canada and provincial governments taxing that to the tune of a third. You know, we're losing $30, $40 million a day net, uh, not just in taxes and revenues from that, uh, the the upstream. We're also losing significant revenues, GST, uh, HST, other uh, taxes, federal federal 10-cent excise tax, provincial 14.7 here in Ontario. Uh, you know, so at a time you're spending more, you're also taking in less revenue. This is a recipe for a serious economic meltdown. Uh, and the inability for governments to pay for the programs that they have out there. What concerns me is how the heck are we going to pay for this this time next year unless we're prepared to set, accept 20% mortgage rates. Uh, last question here, Dan. Uh, many are now talking about as we get to the top of this curve, we're not there yet, but what it's going to look like in the next 90 days or 120 days as we try to structure a way out of this uh, shuddering that we find ourselves in. Uh, the Prime Minister normally speaks at 11 o'clock every morning, took uh, today off to spend with his family, and, and uh, I guess rightly deserved, but uh, of course that didn't stop uh, the Conservatives from jumping into that t- uh, time slot with Pierre Polyev, uh, giving instructions about what he thought the government should do moving forward. They talked about post-COVID-19 and how, what it's going to take to kickstart the economy again. Uh, he was suggesting that uh, Massive projects like the Trans Mountain Pipeline and other infrastructure projects like that is what is needed uh, post-COVID-19 to get this country back on track. Will there be more appetite for these projects post-C-19 uh, than there was prior to it? Well, I, you know, I'm deeply disturbed that environmental organizations are, you know, doubling down on the drop in demand for everything and saying, well, this is what the future looks like. If this is what the future looks like, I think God help us all. Uh, We do need to have uh, a strong uh, industrial and uh, energy-based outcome, uh, not just to get back into the world markets and and do our part in terms of uh, getting the the world engine, uh, economic engine going again, but also, I think, to recognize that Canada 
uh, is at great risk, um, and, and the numbers are, are very telling. You know, the fact the rest of the world can get 20 to 25 bucks for their oil, and we're getting five or six bucks for our oil, I think is in of itself uh, a wake-up call for Canadians. And I, I think the good thing, if there's, I can take anything from my perspective on this, it has been that the climate crisis has now finally been upended by a real true crisis that, that you know that has threatens uh, our existence, that threatens our future, that threatens our standard of living, that threatens Canada and our place in the world. And so I think now smart politicians, um, I guess I would include what Mr. Polyev has said, will now start to look at the longer term. How do we get out of this problem? Uh, yes, we didn't create this. Yes, there are other countries that have. Uh, you know, uh, you know, some explaining to do, uh, i.e. China and the World Health Organization. But beyond that, economically, we went into this recession with blockades, with pipeline hijinks, and we went uh, with uh, an economy that looked like it was in very serious trouble well before the pandemic started. So I think we need someone to plot a path. And if anybody's got any great ideas, I am all ears because I'm currently hearing from this government more navel-gazing and, uh, again, being two weeks behind where they should have been at every turn. So... Without being partisan or political, uh, I'm looking for solutions, and I think Canadians are. Well, we certainly know uh, at April 1st, the government, while giving aid out to Canadians, didn't stop a carbon tax from moving forward, saying that that is still the plan. Um, do you think that the discussion will move to, this is all the more reason just to shut this thing down now. We don't need it, uh, pollution's down, all that sort of thing, so let's just keep it all shuttered while we have the chance. Do you think the discussion will move in that direction? Well, I think the federal government overplayed its hand by imposing the carbon tax willy-nilly in the most serious economic downturn that we've experienced uh, in a decade, and in a century, uh, or nearly a century since the 1929-1930 meltdown. So I, I think the, the, for most people, it's when the priorities were to, you know, to find ways to get the economy stimulated and to mitigate the impact on Canadians, the only thing the Trudeau government could come up with uh, was uh, a carbon tax or an increase in carbon tax, adding to the hardship. And while some cutely try to say, well, there's a rebate, which I call a bribe, uh, or uh, it's gasoline prices so cheap you won't notice it, I have had to turn on my furnace. I have had to use propane or natural gas. And this, this government decided to increase that burden. So, look, uh, by their own actions, I think uh, it's very clear to me that they don't get it. It will take another party to do so. Uh, unfortunately, um, the Bloc NDP Green uh, Liberal Alliance uh, sees things only one way. And so uh, as Canadians uh, return from you know, what has been uh, this isolation uh, brought upon themselves, uh, brought upon us by other circumstances, I think all of us are going to have to really make a decision as to who we want to run this country and how best to get out of this problem because, of course, the current way and the current government simply can't uh, fathom uh, and, and cobble together a new idea, uh, ex- same except for continuation, same old, same old, uh, the same tired stories that were heard that the climate is somehow responsible for everything that is bad in this world. Uh, we've heard that this cannot be, life cannot go back to normal immediately. It's not a case of flipping a switch. It'll be a very gradual thing as we go down the backside of this curve. Is that what we will see in the energy industry? How will we see the energy industry come back after this? Well, I think it has to come back stronger, but it's going to need help. It's going to need liquidity. That's basically the ability to make ends meet, to ensure that it doesn't falter, to ensure that it continues to be viable and that it continues to be the strongest uh, economic uh, engine we have in this country. Look, whether people like it or not, the largest export in this country isn't automobiles, it's not aluminum, it's not uh, our dairy products or 
uh, you know, our, our mining or, you know, uh, pulp and paper. It is, in fact, oil. Let me repeat that for everybody. Oil is your number one export. If you want to despoil that or turn your back on it, fine. But ask yourself, how are we going to make ends meet? How are we going to pay for this massive debt that we have right now? Because it's not going to happen by bringing in a few extra windmills and a few extra companies and giving them generous, uh, you know, un- uh, un- unaccountable uh, incentives to come in here and build with the, you know, uh, uh, photovoltaic solar solar panels and, and windmills. Uh, you're only going to get it by a proven industry that can hire and create jobs and to create prosperity. And that's to get out of this, we have to get our, uh, we have to put our best oars in the water rowing in this one direction. And uh, anybody who has any distractions about climate, I think should be ignored. Uh, frankly, I think they should be isolated. Uh, and uh, until we get through this problem, we get back to where we were, say, this time last year, saving until then, I, I think we should be turning down the volume on those folks who have nothing better to do but shut down the Canadian economy, and they know it. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you and your family are doing well and stay safe. And to you and all the listeners, thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.